Oh, let's start. Good to see you all again. We've got a lot to do tonight, a lot to do. I thought this would be a relatively easy class for me to prepare for, and which I say all the time and should know better. But I mean, it's really true, should know better. Because Hemingway's stories are so simple, but when I began to put all of the background material together that I think is important, that's why you have <laughs> 20 piles over there. <laughs> By the way, I'm giving a test on all of it. Um, what? What'd she say? Next week. Next week. You guys have had it too soft since you left college. We need to do something about that. Um, I've got a number of things to do tonight, so let's let's start with prayers and um, any talk. I'm sorry. Do you have a pen? Any any prayers for tonight? Man, yeah. Faith and courage for the family, yeah. I saw, I saw. It's Dick and Tom and the family. And you at the heart of it. <laughs> Anybody else? In a shower. God. What's her name, Karen? Marsha. Marsha? Do they know from what? No. Let's, yes, Peggy. Um, a friend by the name of Carol, she's just diagnosed today with dementia. Sorry. See. A friend named Carol. Harold. Carol. Carol. Carol, Carol sorry. She was diagnosed, well, I heard today that she has that mood body dementia. So, it's going to be a long Carol? God. Let's start. Boy. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, what a bracing moment always to start class with prayers. Um, because it's not uncommon that we're losing somebody and it's a reminder that we might not be here. So we're used to seeing each other, we show up, we take it for granted, and then we hear somebody died in a shower or somebody's struck with a disease. So strengthen us please, all of us in our hearts to prepare. I'm gonna do this. <laughs> Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. Pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving I'll be a living 
sanctuary for you. Help prepare us um, for the end that's coming to all of us, not to take what time we have for granted, to find a strength in the prayers that we offer each other, support we give each other being here. We are grateful. Um, um, what we're going to encounter in this modern world is a kind of universal experience of isolation. People are alone. Um, how sad. We're together here. Um, it's a source of great comfort, a strength to our faith, so um, we cannot give thanks enough for your part in making this possible for all of us. So thank you for that, Lord. Um, I want to offer prayers for um, Dick and Tom. Um, see them through their difficulty. Um, let the ordeal, whatever surprises they faced, whatever they other surprises they will learn of. Um, we all know it's coming, so let this ordeal please strengthen them. I, I know it must sound strange. Help all of us to make a place for joy as we prepare to leave this world. Um, we should be glad. I, I think um, we carry a sense of weaknesses and failures and sins. Um, we know um, we're going to you when you loved us, when we didn't deserve it. So you give all of us a great reason for hope, to be glad, to be grateful. So whatever circumstances we face with ourselves and in our friends, um, thank you, Lord, for all that you do to ease our sufferings. Watch over Dick and Tom. Um, let the occasion of this difficulty um, strengthen the family's faith, their hope in you. Um, let that be especially true for Anne. Um, ask a best blessing on Peggy's friend, Carol. Um, be with her and Peggy. Um, quiet her heart. Um, we're grateful for, for Peggy's meal tonight. And um, we offer a special prayer for, um, what's her name, Karen? Marsha. For Marsha and her sudden death, um, what a shock. What a shock for her husband to come home and find his wife in the shower. God. Um, receive Marsha into your kingdom. Um, forgive her sins. Um, if there's a time she will do in purgatory, let our prayers help. It's one of the tenets of our faith. Um, but one of the tugs against self-reliance that are taking pride that we're so capable of doing so much is that we have the prayers of people we don't even know. It's humbling because so often we pride ourselves on what we can accomplish with our own talents. But they're never enough, never are. So um, let our prayers count for her. Let it increase her delight, her spirit of gratitude in purgatory if there's a time that she's had to support. Um, and be with um, Bob and Karen in their hearts to quiet. Um, I ask 
um, that all of you remember Suzanne and me in your prayers, um, particularly me. I need them. We all do. Um, we offer all of these prayers um, gratefully in hope. Um, in you, Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, we've got a number of things. If you've looked at that pile over there, you know I've loaded you up tonight. Um, so be sure you get all those materials. Um, lots of them are background things. Um, um, last week when I was thinking about this week, I was thinking I'm just not much to do. Hemingway's short stories are really small. And then I began to think about it. A big mistake for me. <laughs> you guys have to suffer from it all the time. And I just remembered what a stark difference in the world we've just left and the world we're entering. And I could not leave it at that, so I put out a ton of materials. And you know that you don't have to read any of it, but for those of you who want to know our world better, there's a lot over there that re really could help you. And I want to say this going in, just as a note, I've got a couple of my usual introductory notes that I want to give because we're starting in a whole new stage of our reading together. My experience at St. Francis, and I think here, you'll have to tell me, I mean, it'll be interesting to hear from you guys, is that surprisingly, I hear people saying how much they enjoy Hemingway and how much they, Faulkner's extraordinary. Faulkner, I think, is probably the, is the greatest storyteller of the 20th century. And when we get there, I, I hope you'll see why. But um, I'm surprised to hear people say how much they enjoy Hemingway because Hemingway's so negative. I mean, we're gonna look at three stories tonight that are gonna be darker than anything we've looked at except the scenes with um, Yvonne and the devil. But in some ways, that's so literary when we, when we read Hemingway, we're in touch with ordinary people who are s suffering from a, I'm going to name it, despair that they don't even name, that gives a dark cast to everything he writes. And yet, people love him. And my experience with most Catholics is they love him. They really find him interesting. I want to offer this suggestion going in. I, I don't want to talk about it, right? I'm just going to offer you some thoughts. I think one of the reasons that Hemingway's enjoyable after we've, you know, spent so much time in Melville and uh, Dostoevsky is that we're in a world, our world. We're not back in, we're not in Russia. We're not back in the 19th century with um, Ahab on the Pequod. We're in our world and I think I can say this with some conviction, one of the great gifts that Hemingway's given us is he helps us to see our world as it is. So if there's any confusion about where we are, what we're dealing with, part of that confusion gets dispelled. You can't read Hemingway without saying, that's our world. And, and know more clearly exactly what it is we're dealing with. If you were in doubt, if you had any obscurity about that or confusion, some of that should be done. You're looking at our world and he's thrown a light, he throws a light on our world as dark as Sophocles or Aeschylus. And remember, in Sophocles, Oedipus blinded himself. That's how ugly it gets. 
in Aeschylus, in the Oresteia. Oresteia has to, he, he goes almost mad with the Furies. When Dante's in hell, he looks at the Medusa and Virgil has to turn him around because Dante's looking at very, very ugly things. We're not in a mythic world right now. This is our world. And there, there are few people who had the courage to, sh to take on that world and show it for what it is. So it seems to me one of the values, and I'm going to pick this up in a minute when I give my general reflection. One of the values of reading Hemingway is, is that he makes it clear to us where we stand, exactly what we're dealing with. So if we, if we tend to sit in our pews and take our faith for granted or know that we're different so that we don't have to worry about these things, <laughs> read Hemingway, and then you realize exactly what it is we're dealing with in our families, in our communities, in our world. And Hemingway, and I'm sure you all know this, Hemingway is a flower next to what we're dealing with today. I mean, the, the, the darkness that he faces is nothing like the darkness we're facing today. So I'm just going to say we've entered a dark world and it's interesting for me to think about this because lots of people, when I ask them how they're finding Hemingway, they, they have very positive things to say about it. And I'm always surprised because he's so dark. But it seems to me that's one of the values, that we're looking at a world that I think too often we don't want to look at. And he makes it possible to look at that world and see it as it is, so we know a little bit better where we stand, okay? A couple of things today that um, um, At St. Francis a week ago, there was a scheduled talk by Christopher West, who runs the Theology of the Body program. He's been doing it since John Paul published Theology of the Body. I had no interest in going because I feel like I've been living Theology of the Body for the last 15 years since I read it. And literature and art is so much a part of my life that um, Suzanne went and begrudgingly I went. It was an amazing, amazing, Ama I was amazed. <laughs> it was a stunning presentation. And I'm only saying this now because I don't know who, I, I was hoping, I was shocked and a little bit, a little bit angry. The church was made two-thirds full and I thought, where's everybody? And where are all the people from C's? Where are all the people from C's and where are all the people from Dallas? That really bothered me. This was an amazing event. Um, it's extraordinary. He, he, he fills in, he packs in his tour lectures, so, and we know a couple in Dallas who want to get him there, so he'll be around again. I just want to say this to you. I want, I'm going to take two minutes with it, if you'll pardon me, because it, it, it deals with what we're doing. I've got words for Chris West, and that is, where's literature in your program? You don't have enough literature. He, art is the focus. It, the, whole, the whole focus of Theology of Body is the body. And I'll speak to that. Which means there's an, a more immediate place of the arts. Painting, music, sculpture, and literature. But it's, it's, hard to put a, <laughs> it's hard to put a story on the walls of a church. You can put a piece of sculpture there, you can put a painting, you can hear music. Literature gets short shrift on all of this. That doesn't leave me pleased at all. You can imagine. Um, um, so be alert 
pay attention to this. Um, make some efforts to go online, research this, find out what's happening, where it's going to be. You do not want to miss this. And let me, I'm going to give a 60 second bullet on, on his talk. Here's his talk. Before the talk, on the two screens set up in the front, it was in the church. And it put lights on the chapel, so it put the whole chapel in a different, in a different atmosphere. So that people could not take for granted the church, the altar, the art behind it. He wanted, he wanted to defamiliarize, to get people out of that taking for granted that's so much a part of our lives that we have, we have to struggle with. So in the, in the time before the talk, they were, they were running um, passages from scripture on the two screens. And the passages that were on the screen were from um, Song of Solomon. And if you know that, I think it's, it's an extraordinary, and, he, and I didn't know this, he said, more was written about Song of Songs by the church fathers than any other work in the Old Testament. And if you've read it, you know how erotic it is. The, the passages on the line were, um, and the lover was looking at the breasts of his beloved. You know, it's just unapologetic about sex. And one of the points that Wes made through the whole thing was that what John did, John Paul, was um, over and over and over again emphasize the importance of the human body because it's what makes us humans. We're not angels. And the tendency of the modern world is either degrade the body, to abuse it, to make, to make it an idol, or the Puritan right, Catholic and Protestant, to be oppressive, to look at the body as a bad thing. That's, that's inherited in the Protestant world. We've talked about it. So his whole point was that there's an erotic um, element to our Christian faith that we should be celebrating. We don't want to oppress it, we don't want to abuse it, but we do want to celebrate it. It's not something to be ashamed about. Eros is a part of our nature. Having sex is a good thing. I remember John Paul in one of his talks made a point to the men. I don't, I don't know if the men and women were separate. In one of his talks he said, he said to all the men, you guys should make sure that the women you love climax. <laughs> I mean, can you be more blunt than that? That's our Pope. That he, he, he said over and over again, and, and one of the things that Wes kept stressing is, there is an erotic nature to us as humans. We shouldn't apologize for it. We shouldn't indulge it, we shouldn't oppress it, but it's there. It's a, it's a source of celebration. Now having said that, here's my 60-second bullet on the Catholic Church. It was stunning to me. What he made clear, and I don't think he put it quite this way, but I'm going to put it this way, is that marriage, I I'm, I'm, don't think I'm being unfair to him or not faithful to him or John Paul. He said that marriage Marriage, get this everybody, is the defining image of our Catholic faith. Now, hold on to that if that sounds stunning to you. It began in a garden with a couple, implying a marriage. If you've, you know, because we read it together, you should know. I keep thinking, should I be giving quizzes here? We read Revelation. Revelation ends with the bridegroom. It ends, the Bible ends. Starts in the garden with... Adam and a couple. It ends with the bridegroom saying to the bride, come, come, come. It's a call to marriage. 
So it starts in the garden. Our God is father of children. It implies a marriage. Um, he, he offers his seed. Think about the parables of the seeds, God's word. He offers his seed. The New Testament is the means by which we can be reunited with our Father. Christ comes to call us to him. He is the bridegroom calling the bride. So all the way through the New Testament, you've got Christ presenting himself as the bridegroom calling us the church, his bride. That includes men and women. So the, the, the principal motif organizing the Bible is marriage. It's us be reunited with our Father through Christ. Every, and he, what was wonderful is he described the church, the structure of the church, in terms of a marriage. There's the aisle, you process up, you take communion, which is a part of the wedding feast. It's the bridegroom giving himself to the bride. Yes? There's not anything that isn't done in terms of marriage. And one of the most sunny, th so in, in, during one of the segments, he showed a clip of the egg the, with all the sperm, you know, going to it. And his words appropriately were, God's providential design is imprinted, made clear in the human body. We've got an umbilical cord tying us to our past, our origins. We've got genitals pointing us forward in procreation. So that we carry on, and this is stunning, in particularly in our work, we carry on the creative work of God in our marriages. And one of the most beautiful lines of the thing was, um, God, it just stuns me. Um, a woman, a woman is bringing into being an immortal soul. Think about abortion and the way women put off conceiving a child or bringing a child, interfering with a career. <sighs> a woman is nurturing a creature who has an immortal soul. She's bringing somebody in, into the world to be ultimately united with God through Christ. And here was one of the amazing things he did at the end. It was such, it was a wonderful thing. He said, so when a man and a woman make vows of um, chastity, before they become priests and religious. They make these vows of chastity, and what they're doing is restraining themselves in their sexual nature for others. So for a man, because it's only the man who gives seeds, God, the modern world, I can't, it just, it makes the whole modern world more than horrible. I mean, it, it's almost demonic. A woman can't produce seeds. She offers an ovum, her egg. So this picture of these millions of sperms, you know, approaching this egg and only one of them, only one of them is going to be, all these other poor things are going to be ignored, you know, it's a, but um, only a man can provide the seed. So when a man becomes a priest, he professes chastity because he's going to give his seed to the people, to the bride, the church. A woman cannot be a priest because she does not have seed. She's receiving something. So what she does when she makes vows is to deny herself to be a mother to all those she will nurture. 
But what the point I'm trying to make here is that what was wonderful about this talk is, is that it celebrated the human body. And we so take it for granted or abuse it. Interesting, he said. So here's marriage. This is what marriage does. Throw all of that away, what do you have? The union between a man and a woman, a man offering himself to his wife, a woman, the bride offering himself to her husband sexually. Throw all that away, what do you have? I'm asking it, throwing this out to you, because I, I, I had an answer in my head and it just missed, but throw all that away, what do you have? Guys. My first thought was divorce. His answer was masturbation. Pornography. That the individual, so take away, so, so we're made in God's image. The ultimate image of our God is Trinitarian. It's a perfect indwelling between the three persons. If we're made in his image, the image of God, then our nature is to indwell with each other. It's a communion. We do not hold the way the Protestant world does that we're isolated and it depends on an act of faith where we say, Jesus is my Lord and we're all saved and, you know, there are hierarchies. The man has a hierarchical place to, to serve God, the woman, her husband, that those are in nature, that they go back to our Father and Christ and um, throw all that away. And sexually, we've got all of our modern perversions. That's our world. Anyway, I didn't, I know this doesn't seem to have much to do, but I was so taken. You want to be aware of the theology of the body work. It's been going on since John Paul published The Out of the Body. It focuses on the arts, the beauty of things, the, the body, the sensitivity of the body's openness to beauty. To So it celebrates the human body. I, when I was in the course, I kept thinking, I was reminded of the work we did when we did the Divine Comedy, if those of you remember who were here. Because all the way through the Paradiso, through the entire Paradiso, I kept saying again and again, there's no greater celebration of the human body than Dante and the Paradiso. That everything that we see shows how amazing the human body is. Set that against Luther and Calvin. God. Our Catholic faith does something you won't find anywhere else in the world. Everybody should be ecstatic in our faith. One of the images he showed us, just to finish this up, one of the images he showed us was, have you all seen the statue of um, St. Teresa of Avila? The ecstasy of St. But John Paul, John Paul talked about, oh God, he's, what an amazing pope. The law of ecstasy. The law, is there anything more punitive or oppressive than laws? John Paul talks about the law of ecstasy. It's so written in our bodies. That's our providential God. It's in our body. Anyway, one of the one of the pictures on the screens that you showed was the was the ecstasy of um, Teresa of Avila. She's so overcome with the movement of the spirit that it's like an orgasm that a woman has in sex. If you've not seen it. You want to go online? That's stunning. Oh, here, this is a catch. Anyway, here's the, it's in a church in Rome. And I'll just add one more note and then I'll stop. This is the whole piece. 
Here's the interesting thing about this. We didn't do this because, oops, let it go. Sorry, I'm sorry. Um, that sculpture was commissioned in response to the Protestant Reformation. Shakespeare's just written, and we can look at Shakespeare's late Renaissance and the early Baroque. And the early Baroque is that period that's responding to the repressions of the Protestant Reformation, the austerity with the body, the body is a bad thing. So this artist Bernini was commissioned to do this piece that shows <laughs> Teresa in ecstasy. That's the Baroque period. It's immediately following the Renaissance. You can say Shakespeare's already in that period with what he does with language. Um, so the, the Catholic Church is at work trying to reaffirm the body at a time when it's being degraded, theologically degraded. You know, it's been a theme in what we've been doing, but here it was made explicit. So anyway, let me stop. I just wanted to encourage you all to pay attention to what's going on with theology of the body. It's an amazing work, truly amazing. I think it's so needful for our time, just so badly. I'm not exaggerating this. When I read Theology of the Body, what was it, 20 years ago? I'm not exaggerating this at all. It was a, I'm not exaggerating. It was the first time in my life that I um, had a visceral feeling that Christ was in the world. I'm not exaggerating that. When the Theology of the Body came out, I pictured Christ in the world healing. That's a book. But, it, but it's, it, to, to my mind, it spoke so directly to the disorders of our age, because I think they're all focused in the body and marriage, that for him to write that was like Christ walking in the street. That's how big it was for me. So Christopher West has been doing this wonderful work. If you have a chance, go online. There are lots of the talks are available on YouTube, I think. You know, I think you would enjoy. Um, there are series um, that you can watch, you know, if you, um, but take this seriously. It, it's, <laughs> if you think about it, if, if you think about the argument that I was making ago, that, that, <laughs> this is, that the defining image of Catholicism is marriage, who's ever said that? I'm saying it. You can, the defining image of our faith is a marriage. And every, every single ideology of the modern world is an attack on marriage. Contraceptions, divorce, abortion, um, same-sex marriages, trans. Every single one of them. And, and remember, the, 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 and should, I mean, the Catholic Church has such a bad rep. We can't get divorced. We can get divorced in the Catholic Church. The Church allows divorces. But it's through, I mean, we marry in God's will, we put our hands there. I mean, it's, it means, you know, we have to be careful of our own wills. So the church is there to help us. So anyway, it's just sort of amazing to think about our Catholic faith because it's, it really, you can look at it as the defining image and it's one of the reasons it's so hated by the modern world. Because most of the modern world hates everything having to do with marriage. Okay, I'm done. Because what? Because the priest is in, in persona Christi. Right. As he presents himself to the church, as he offers to the church, 
Right. Would. Yes. Just to extend, is everybody here, Karen? The most important thing is, in Persona Christi, think about all the parables that Christ spoke in which he talks about the seeds. Planting the seeds, the, the sower parable. A male has seeds, a woman doesn't. If a cre- if, and how many, God, how many priests gave in to the pedophile problem, you know, years ago? Or, I mean, what a problem that was for the church. Because the church was already in confusion. If, you, if a man can marry a man, it already implies trans because you're changing the nature of your partner. It's not a woman. You're already implicitly changing that person. So trans was already implied. It's been there. So all of these things were there from the beginning. It's in Persona Christi, but it's crucial to me. He's a man. Only the man has seed. The woman receives in a womb. So the, the, biolo- the biological fact of our nature is something you can't play around with. It's modern world wants to change it. The church is saying there's a real difference between man and woman. It's at the heart of our church. It's why so many people do not like the Catholic Church. Because everybody else wants to be able to do whatever they want to do. Anyway, any, any more comments or before we... It's so funny. We think we know so much when we go to college. You know, 20, 23 years, it's like, God. We should keep learning. And sadly, lots of people don't. You guys are a rare breed. I don't know what's wrong with you, but let's start. Okay, a couple of things about, I've got notes for tonight. Um, I put out a reading list um, some of you asked for reading this. Just know that I'm going to revise it again, even though it's there. It's, that one's already... I was putting together things and then Susanna and I were talking about it and she must have hit me over the head 20 times and about Hawthorne, what about... And, and my, it's, <laughs> it's like my mind was getting dusted off and I was remembering people that, that just have not been on my mind for a long time. So I'm going to increase that list. So go on, our, go on our site in a week and get it because you'll have an extended list. So for those of you who, when this class is over and you go through your existential crisis. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, oh God. Tell, tell my body that. Um, for those of you who... You know, when we're done, if, if we're ever done. Um, there's a, a good reading list of solid, and, and a lots of them will be short stories. So you won't be committed to something as long as Dostoevsky, although I would encourage all of you to, re- to read The Devil. Dostoevsky's the... If that doesn't put a good scare in you, I don't... <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll expand the list. So in a week or two, check out our website. And you all know what to do on the website, right? You go on our... Literature's Prophecy, go down to the bottom of that content page, look on the C's, 
and then go down under modernity or modern and um, you'll find all of those things. They should be on modern and they should also be under Hemingway as a modern, okay? Okay, here's the, I, I've told you, any, any publication of Old Man of the Sea, I happen to have, it's a, um, it's a Scribner copy, it's just very, very simple, very clean, um, but any copy, copy, hmm? A what copy? Scribner, the publishing house. Oh. But you can get any, remember what I said last week? The page numbers will vary if you don't have a Scribner, but um, as you read through it, just there are no chapters. Mark the days, day one, day two, day three, day four, because that'll help you find out where we are when I go through it, because we won't have the same page. Okay. Okay, let's start. Let's start. Um, Okay, two, couple of really important thoughts before we start, or because part of my opening reflections. If you look at my notes, I'm, I'm just going to highlight a couple of thoughts, um, those that I've circled so that you could. Um, get to them more quickly. On the first page, I ask this question. Um, when we, I'll come back to this in a second. When we leave the 19th century with Melville and Dostoevsky, we enter the modern world for force. And Hemingway's a, probably the, one of the best examples that we could use to see the shift. In the 19th century, we experienced works of a Christian world in crisis, right? America's in crisis, Russia's in crisis. We saw that. Because both countries um, are um, undergoing a shock from new enlightenment ideas coming out of Europe. Largely from France, but from Europe. And those ideas are squarely set against anything miraculous or religious. So you've got two, two A's of reading the world right now. One is scientific and rationalist, the other is religious. And we saw that conflict very clearly. Moby Dick, Dostoevsky, we entered into that conflict. In the 20th century, we're beyond that now. We're now in a world without God. What the, what the modern world calls a world of darkness, a world of nothingness. There is no meaning to the world. It's a despairing world. So, why do we read Hemingway? I'm going to say he's an extraordinary writer. Um, the three stories that we read are going to be painful to read, genuinely painful. In some ways, more painful than what happens with Devon. Painful to read. Why do we read them? When Suzanne finished um, um, The Short Happy Life of Macomber last night, she was angry. Shit, I hate this work. Um, there's a lot about it. Uh, Margot McComber is a hideous woman. 
By the way, the, we're going to get a vision of women in most of the readings that we're going to do. It's not going to be very... The women, are going, the women writers, are going to have very little good to say about women in our world. So we're going to have to come to terms with something that will be something of a shock for us. What do you do... Why, what's the value of reading a world without God? One of the values is that we see what happens to the world when he's gone. It becomes a really ugly world. That's one thing to keep in mind. Second question I want to ask. If Hemingway believes that the world is meaningless, um, how can he write these works of art that are aesthetically so perfect? He's a master writer. What he does... I mean, I, the only writer that I think of that is better than Hemingway or is James Joyce and Faulkner. But what Hemingway does in these short stories is almost unsurpassed. Nobody does what he does. His stories are so tight, um, so dense in meaning. On the second page, I give three categories. Traditional, realist, and natural. I want to come back to those because they're going to be defining. These are my notes that I the the outline that I always give you guys. Which one? several. Oh well, it says literature's prophecy, first class on modernity, Hemingway stories. There's a packet of them over there. Um, so to follow up the last question I asked. If Hemingway believes in a world in which nothing has meaning, why did he write, how, how could he write something as perfect as these stories, as masterfully written as these stories are? On page five of my notes, I'm offering a tentative answer to that. If the world, if, I hope, every, is everybody following me? If the world is meaningless, why do this stuff? Truly, I'm saying it, I'm really trying to be as blunt. I'm not going around things here. I'm being as simple and direct as I can. If the world is meaningless, why do this stuff? Why not go out and shoot yourself? Well, wait on that. Go out and shoot yourself. The world's, and lots, the, the numbers of suicide in the modern world has gone through the roof, so. Here's C.S. Lewis's partial answer to that question on page five at the bottom. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world, that there's something else there. Otherwise, why do I have these desires? This is bottom page five. These are my notes. The title says, Literature's Prophecy, First Class on Modernity, Hemingway Stories. There's a, there's a couple of different notes, but you should have. Doc, can you get, can you, are there any, can you get any of those and, and bring them over? Literature's Prophecy, First Class on Modernity. Really? Oh, it's the top of page six. Wow, something happened. Page six. Yeah. 
something's wrong. That's only one left. Or over here. Is that what you wanted? Oh, I don't know how. I don't have. Yeah, you're, I mean, something happened. I'm sorry, I don't know what happened, but so no, just put it down. Sometimes the margins are different. It's strange. strange. Yeah. Okay, here's one last response to my question. What's the value of reading Hemingway? Beginning of Dante's Divine Comedy. Remember, this is the beginning of the Inferno. And you remember that we learn later in the Inferno, because you guys all know this now. Um, we learn from the Divine Comedy that Dante was damned. When the story starts, he's damned. He doesn't know it. Remember when he starts, he's trying to get up that mountain to, to go to the light. And we learn two-thirds of the way through that he's damned. And it's only because of the help that he receives from Mary and Lucia and Beatrice and this experience he has of learning to see himself and how the danger that he was in, that he's saved. This is the beginning of the Inferno, the Divine Comedy. Midway along the journey of our life, I woke to find myself in a dark wood, for I had wandered off from the straight path. How hard it is to tell what it was like. This wood of wilderness, you could put darkness, Savage and stubborn, the thought of it brings back all my old fears. A bitter place, death could scarce be bitter. But if I would show the good that came of it, I must talk about things other than the good. Remember, he cannot get to paradise. Remember, he wants to climb that mountain? He cannot do it by himself. It's not until he looks at bad things and understands the bad things that he'll be able to change the things that are not good in him. So one of the values of reading somebody like Hemingway or the moderns is that we see exactly what's going on in the world. Okay. Now I want one last thing before we start on Hemingway's stories. There are three traditions to keep in mind when we're reading Hemingway. Everybody should take this very, very seriously. Um, I know some of you take notes. These are, these are things you want to know. Um, there are three different ways of looking at the world we can say. One is, first is traditional, or traditionalism. The second is realism. The third is naturalism. There are three different ways of looking at the world, and, and there are three different kinds of literature reflecting that world. Is that clear? Traditionalism, realism, naturalism. So it's three different ways of looking at the world that are reflected in three different kinds of literature. Okay? The epic, we can say, was traditional. It told a story about Achilles or um, Odysseus or Aeneas. And in every one of those ancient epics, um, the heroes struggled with their problems with the divine order behind them. The gods were involved in everything they did. So there was a transcendent standard. When people disobeyed the gods, when they went against the gods, they suffered. We know that from all three epics, from the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. So whatever the action was on earth, it was played against a transcendent backdrop. The gods were there. And they told a story, okay? 
Now that way, that traditional way of looking at the world continued until the Renaissance and the Copernican Revolution, the Scientific Revolution, okay? When the Scientific Revolution took place, 16th century, the transcendent or divine drops out because the most important thing then is science and empirically what you can prove with your senses. So anything that the senses cannot prove is not real. Miracles are not real. The sacred's not real. The divine's not real. It's at that point in the West that we lose a metaphysical dimension of reality. A whole metaphysical dimension is lost and the world begins to define itself in terms of the sciences. Okay? Is everybody with me? Realism comes in then, begins to play a major role in the way people look at the world. Realism simply means you present things as they seem to you right in front of you. A flower, an accident, a murder, somebody dying, somebody having a disease, it doesn't matter what goes on. But here's the important thing to see for both the traditional and the realist vision and the stories that come out of it. Both of those ways of looking at the world assume coherence, cause and effect sequence, causality, and um, the autonomy of the human person. I'll repeat that. Both of those ways rest on belief in coherence, cause and effect, causality, one thing follows from another, symmetry, the integrity, the autonomy of the human person. So that whoever starts a story will be that same person no matter what happens at the end. So even if Achilles undergoes some changes or Hamlet or whoever, whoever that person was remains the same. There's an autonomy and integrity to the human soul. Okay? That's true for the traditionalist and the realist. Now here's what happens under naturalism. Naturalism enters the world in the 19th century with Marx, Darwin, Freud. Now this is absolutely crucial. And I want everybody to, to, to grasp this hard. The theories of none of those men has been proved. None of them. Not Darwin. There's more evidence against Darwin's theory of evolution than there is in support of it. It's not proven. It's not a fact. And it can't be subjected to um, scientific experiments. It's a theory. It, it is not a reflection of what is. It's a theory. And most people understand today that it's full of holes. The missing links and all those sorts of things are problem. Freud has not been proved. If anything, um, a lot of evidence has disproved Freud. It's a theory. It's not what is. Marx is, 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 to me, it's amazing. He still has an amazing influence in the university. Most of the people who are in the judicial political system today are products of an education where Marx was at its center. That's at the beginning of the 20th century. 19, you know, what? 1950s, 1940, 1930. That whole period through the 20th century into our time Marx was probably, Darwin and Marx were probably the most important influences in a student's science or education. Okay? So 
Here's the fundamental difference between naturalism and realism. Naturalism believes that we, that we are in an animal world, we're all animals, men and women belong to the animal kingdom, and there are determinisms for humans the same way there are for animals or other material things. So for the naturalist writer, he's not looking, he's not governed by realism, he's governed by looking at what is realistically presented before him, but that can be understood only in terms of natural laws. Inherent laws. For Freud, it was the Oedipus complex or perverse sexual instinct. For Darwin, it was um, natural selection. For Freud, it was perverse sexual things. And Marx, it was economic political realities. Marx was a determinist. He didn't believe in metaphysical realities. Is everybody following? All of those theorists assume a scientific worldview that reason is capable of controlling everything. But none of them can be proved by scientific methods. So they look back to the scientific revolution for the two centuries before that. Their theories, they're, they're, they're looked at today as if they're facts. Kids coming out of the schools will take Darwin as if he's the last word or Freud or Marx. They're not. They've not been proven their theories. And most serious thinkers find fundamental flaws in all their theories. Is everybody following? But here's the, here's the clicker. Hemingway, Fitzgerald, all of those men were writing exactly at that time when those theories were shaping the lives of everybody in the world. So if you look at Hemingway's world, you'll see it particularly when we do um, Old Man on the Sea. The governing principle for Hemingway is self-preservation. It's determinist, it's Darwin or... But human beings are governed by these impulses, animal impulses. We'll see it in the Macomber story, which is a horrible story. But Hemingway's whole... He, he, the second wife he married four times. The second wife he married was Catholic. He converted. How deep that conversion went um, is unknown. And I want to go to the ending today because I think everybody has a misunderstanding of this. Hemingway had lots of injuries during life. From the beginning, a war injury early on that played a role in his first couple of novels, Farewell to Arms, For Whom the Bell Tolls. Hemingway's universe is defined in terms of death and nothingness. Those are the defining terms. That out of no, or, or unexpected accidents, injuries, wounds, that these things get in the way of human beings and they can have lasting effects. And because it's a world of nothingness and he doesn't admit a, a transcendent order, love cannot last. You cannot read a Hemingway story and find a love that outlasts its accidents, its trump. There's no place for a cross I want everybody to hold this because this is so defining. If you live in a universe, for, for Hemingway, the, 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 the universe was meaningless. It was a world of nada, nothing. The one thing that man could do to show that he was above his circumstances is do what he said. Um, show a moment of grace under action. 
It's a moment of grace of being able to hold up when things are falling apart. That was defining for him. And it was largely confined to the individual. When a man can perform an act that holds on to his human dignity, what he, what he called a moment of grace, that raised him above this nothingness world. But you cannot find anywhere in Hemingway a love between a man and a woman that will last. Or, um, and here's, here's the sort of sad thing. If man has this code of conduct, that it's only when he does these sorts of things that he rises above his circumstances, there's no place in Hemingway's world for failure. None. He always had to win. He loved bullfighting, boxing, tough sports, because it was in those sports that a man could show how manly he was. Now, stop for a moment and set that against Christ, because Christ came into the world to love us in spite of our failings. He loved us when we didn't deserve it. The women in Hemingway's world tend to be awful. They only love a man when he comes up to their expectations. If they don't, you can imagine, they're a failure. We're going to see that in the stories. So in the Hemingway world, we're in a universe in which the only way a man can show how good he is by, is by being superior to his circumstances. But there's no place for a failure. At the end of his life, Hemingway, so from early on in his life, Hemingway suffered from injuries, war injuries, injuries through his life. He had awful accidents. In the last 10, 15 years of his life, he had repeated accidents in a plane fight and other things. He had a serious, went through a serious period of depression when all of his friends, all the artists of his time were growing up. And he underwent shock, electric shock treatment. And the analysis now is that that shock treatment so, so disturbed him, um, it so set him off that at the end of his life, in one of those periods, he took a shotgun in. Bob, it's worth observing he was a terrible Sorry, say it again, Chuck. Yeah, it's worth remembering he was a terrible alcoholic. Right, a serious drinker. Is that, it's hard to hear, is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, right, serious, serious drinker all of his life. The reason I'm saying this is just to be clear that if you live with that kind of a code, how do you deal with failures in your life? The Christian has a place for it. it you don't give in to it, you, you, and your answer can't be despair. You do something awful, and you're crushed by it, and feel despair, you get over it. <laughs> you pick yourself up and go on. In Hemingway, there was no place for that. Um, because for a man to be good meant that he always had to measure up to this code, okay? And women would have held men to that standard. Um, so that's just a, a loose background, but I want you to be really clear on those three categories. Traditionalism, realism, and naturalism. Hemingway was writing out of a naturalistic code that all these things have determinisms. That we, the, the whole point of a naturalist is to find that law that defines what you do, whether it's Marxist or Freudian or Darwinian or... There's an underlying law, determinism. And, and man is powerless to escape that. 
For Hemingway, the only thing you could do is have these moments of grace. Well, there's one. Okay. Um, so, remember, in traditional narrative, um, the plots unfolded with a coherence and a clear line of cause and effect. After Freud writes and the unconscious becomes a, mar a part of man's life, plots are not always any more sequential. They can be broken up and divided because you and I both know we can be, middle, we can be in the middle of a, of a sequence of events that are unfolding. They're a part of our life. They define our life. Our husband crashes the car or his wife crashes the car. We've got to pay the insurance or whatever happens at home. In Freud's world, the unconscious becomes as great a force as the conscious world. So we enter a world which is no longer sequential, one thing following another. We can be in a sequential um, series of events and suddenly be thrown into somebody's unconscious. The modern world called it stream of consciousness. So events are no longer just simply clear and coherent. They can turn upside down, they can invert, they can go backwards. And there are these moments when we enter into the stream of consciousness of somebody without even knowing it. So, I mean, just for an example, if I can. So right now we're in a class, I'm talking too much, I have to get to the book. And right now something's going on in Anne's mind because she's recalling something in her past that something I said reminded her of, and suddenly it has a reality of her own. So if she were going to write this story of our class, she'd write what's going on, and then suddenly breaking into it would be this stream of consciousness. So we're no longer in a, in a simple, straightforward, coherent world. We're in a world that can get confusing and turned on its head. And we're going to see that in a number of times with visions and the unconscious and things like that. Okay, that's opening background. We didn't do the poem, so I'm going to do it now. Now hold on to what I've been saying, because it should make more sense of this poem. Is everybody following? End of the 19th century, we've got all these rationalists. They present their theories as if they're scientific, because they're rational. None of them is proved. None of them. In fact, all of them have been discredited. They can't be proven by scientific methods, they're theories, but people take them as real. We've entered a world in which there's no longer God. What's real is what's empirical, what's present to our senses. There's no God. That's gone. Okay? Now, hold on to that. And this is Frost, Robert Frost, who is writing in this same period as Hemingway. So, we're in a world now in which God doesn't exist, but people are aware of it, they carry it with them, but they no longer treat it if it's a, as if it's real. Okay? Here's Hemingway. In the, you should have the, the selections. 
It's the poem called The Oven Bird. I'll just read it. And hold on. You all remember in Homer, what was the significance of birds? Why were they so important? They were auspices. Auspices, the sign of God. Right. Right? The, the birds were carried divine meanings because they were closer to the gods. So remember in the Iliad, when the, when the war is going back and forth, Polydamus reads the bird signs and he says to Hector, don't go there. And Hector ignores him. And what Polydamus warned him of happens. The, the, the ancients looked at birds as if they were heavenly messengers. And there's not been a major poet major, who has not written about birds. All of them. All of them. It's in Dante, it's in Shakespeare, it's in Frost. Frost has got several. Lots of modern poets. We'll read some in, over the course of this work on the journey. Here's Robert Frost. Everybody looks at Robert Frost as if he was this simple country, countrified backwoodsman. Just had nothing to say, simple. Frost is one of those complicated poets of the modern world because he always presents us with this pastoral world. Next week we're going to do um, Stopping by Woods, on a, which, is on, <laughs> which is on Christmas cards. You're going to laugh at it when we do it next week. If you've not read it, I think we've done it once. Stopping by Woods on a snowy evening. It's on Christmas cards. It's one of his darkest poems. We'll look, we'll look at it. This is called The Oven Bird. So we're in Frost's pastoral world. There's no evil. We're not in the city. And he's recalling this bird. And remember, birds were sources of inspiration. They sang songs. The nightingale, the phoenix. You can go on and on. Okay. The Oven Bird. There is a singer everyone has heard, loud a midsummer and a midwood bird, who makes the solid tree trunk sound again. He says that leaves are old, and that for flowers midsummer is to spring as one is to ten. Things are dying, they're old, they're passing away. He says the early petal fall is past, when pear and cherry bloom went down in showers on sunny days, a moment overcast. And comes that other fall, we name the fall. He's so looking back to a Christian world of the fall. He says, the highway dust is over all. The bird would cease and be as other birds, but that he knows in singing not to sing. The question that he frames in all but words is what to make of a diminished thing. Is everybody following? Other birds just chirped. But there are certain birds who are prophetic. And this bird is singing, but the question that he's asking is, what to make of a diminished thing? Is everybody following? Once you take God out of the picture, what's there in nature? What shows his glory anymore? Because remember, in the old, the birds would sing about the glory of God. There's all this going on. Frost is describing this bird who's looking at a world that's lost, it's gone. Now what to do with the diminished thing, okay? So we are square in the modern world. Now let me stop, because I want to I want to get to Hemingway. Any questions or comments on where we are or how dark it is? We've just left 19th century Melville and Dostoevsky, and we are full square in modernity, our world. 
I hope everybody's cheered up right now with all this. <laughs> Any comments or questions? I'm going to have no good words for Sue. If we ever needed wine, it would have been, been tonight. Come on, any questions or comments or? Sorry? No joke. Sorry. Yeah, okay. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. But but for uh, for so many people to like anyway, in my mind, again, you know, everybody has a personal history. I think you could relate somewhere if you say you like him, like his writing, because you could relate somewhere where you've been there too, or you've seen it, there's some there's something that's so real about it. Right. at them right now. Here, before we leave, I want, to, I want to read this note on my from James Joyce. Um, if I can find it. James Joyce said, James Joyce's Ulysses is probably the most complicated linguistic. What Joyce does with words, nobody else, and Joyce was Catholic, or raised Catholic. Joyce said this about Hemingway, because they all went to France, or, yeah, the French circles in England and France, and they all were a part of these inner circles. Joyce said this about Hemingway. He, he admired what Hemingway did. He said, Hemingway has reduced the veil between literature and life, which is what every writer strives to do. He reduced the veil between literature and life. I'll, I'll comment. Have you read A Clean, Well-Lighted Place? It is masterly. Indeed, it's one of the best short stories ever written. That's from James Joyce. What does he mean? What did he mean when he said reduce the veil? Here, look here. As a naturalist, so if if you go back to Melville in Moby Dick or Dostoevsky, you know that you can't read a page on Dostoevsky without a narrator giving you lots of details, pages of details that get us to an action, right? Same with Melville. Or um or um, James Fenimore Cooper or somebody like that. You get all of this detail, um, but what's real in front of us is buried in all of this detail. Mark Twain had this criticism of um, James Fenimore Cooper. If you don't, James Fenimore Cooper is the one who wrote the, the Deerslayer, the Hawkeye stories. Twain, Twain thought of himself as a realist, going 
according to the definition I just gave. He said, Cooper's one of the most ridiculous, I love James Fenner Cooper, I think he's a great writer. Twain had no good words for him. He said, when, you see, when, when Cooper's describing Natty Bumpo running down a path with rifles in both ends and shooting, both hands shooting, and then reloading at the same time and going, he, he said, that's unreal. Because Twain was um, a supporter of realism. He thought things had to be, they had to correspond to our senses. So when he wrote Huckleberry Finn, he was trying to hold himself to details exactly as they took place. Now Joyce is saying the veil between literature and reality is reduced, it's taken to nothing. When we read a Hemingway story, there's almost no narrator describing anything. We're there. There's no words in the way. I, I have to stress that as strongly as I can. The scene unfolds between us, and that's why, that's why Joyce said the veil is reduced to nothing. We're in a scene. It's not hidden or couched in language. We're there. So we're going to feel the effects of that scene more powerfully. And that was Hemingway's technique. It's what he called the tip of the iceberg. He only gave the barest things, in, but he did it in a way that made us feel there's so much more going on than we know. So even though he's not talking a lot, he presents things in such a way that we know there's a lot that's not being said. Now let me go to Hemingway because I want to I'm going to I'm going to take two of the stories very quickly and then do um, Francis Cumber. Hills like White Elephant. You know that this couple is in this in-between station coming from somewhere going to somewhere and they're drinking beer and talking about something and we don't know what it is but she's pressing um, him to know whether she should go through with it or not and he keeps saying no and it's clear after, I'm going to give this away because I, I just, I want to, I want to get to some points here. So I'm assuming everybody's read it. What's at issue is an abortion. She doesn't mention it. She's the woman. She's carrying a child. She's troubled because she knows that the man doesn't want it. Because to have a child means an inconvenience. They're, they've been spending their life doing what they wanted, having pleasure, traveling, and drinking. That's all they do. But now she's pregnant. And facing. And remember what I said earlier. One of the fundamental differences between the sexes is that a woman can carry a child. So she bear she can bear life within her. So this is a defining moment in the Hemingway corpus. All the we don't see this in other women. Here's a woman who's pregnant. It defines her as a human. She can have a child, the man can't. Man has wants nothing to do with it. Um, so they're ordering drinks on the first page. The girl looked at the bead curtain. They painted something on it, she said. What does it say? Anis del Toro. It's a drink. Could we try it? They have more than a few drinks while they're there. I'm just going to skip here because I want to get to a point. Um, the warm wind, this is on the second page. The warm wind blew um, the, the bead curtains against the table. The beer's nice and cool, the man said. It's lovely, the girl said. It's really an awfully simple operation jig, the man said. It's not really an operation at all. The girl looked at the ground table legs, the, the table legs rested on. I know you wouldn't mind a jig, it's really not anything. It's just to let the air in. The girl did not say anything. I'll go with you and I'll stay with you all the time. They just let the air in and then it's all perfectly natural. 
We'll be fine afterwards, just like we were before. She keeps questioning what, um, what for. Um, go down. I love you now. You know I love you. I know. But if I do it, then it will be nice again if I say things like white elephants and you'll like it. I love it. I love it now. But I just can't think about it. You know how I get when I worry. If I do it, you won't ever worry. I won't worry that, um, about that because it's perfectly simple. Then I'll do it because I don't care about me. What do you mean? I don't care about me. They go on. Um, now, they continue in this way. You've got to realize, he said, that I don't want you to do it if you don't want to. I'm perfectly willing to go through with it if it means anything to you. Doesn't it mean anything to you? We could get along, of course it does. But I don't want anybody but you, I don't want anybody else. And I know it's perfectly simple. Yes, you know it's perfectly simple. They go on continuing like this. Um, he did not say anything but looked at the bags against the wall of the station. There were labels on them from the hotels where they had spent nights. But I don't want you to, he said. I don't care anything about it. I'll scream, she said. The woman comes out, says the train's coming in five minutes. Um, I better take the bags over to the um, side of the station. The man said she smiled. All right, then come back and we'll finish the beer. They were waiting reasonably for the train. He went out through the bead curtain. She was sitting at the table, smiled at him. Do you feel better, he said. I feel fine, she said. There's nothing wrong with me. I feel fine. Okay, a couple questions here. Um, remember in the traditional story, the novel, the, the, the principle defining the traditional novel was the turn and recognition, the peripatia and anagnosis. Every one of Jane, Aust Jane Austen's stories, every one of Shakespeare's, they all turn, a tragedy, all of Shakespeare's turn on a moment of recognition. Jane Austen's heroines do, Shakespeare's tragic heroes, um, even the heroines in the comedies. They come to a moment where they see something and it's as if it turns the whole world around. Now hold on to this because this is the principle. In a conventional world, a traditional world, um, the turn is absolutely crucial for this reason. Some wrong has been done. Everybody follow this is crucial. Some wrong has been done, whether it's Iago or Claudius and Hamlet or wherever you are. Jane Austen, it can be her arrogance, Elizabeth's arrogance or Darcy's. Something's wrong. Some wrong, some disorder exists, okay? And then there's a turn. Something happens to answer that wrong. And during that moment, the person, the central figure, has a moment of recognition. So order is returned to the world. The sources, this is crucial, the sources of rationality in the world are recovered. Nature recovers. It makes clear that there's a rationality to nature. Evils can't go on. If you keep poison in the air from pollutions, will nature go on as it should? No. There's a rationality, what we've been calling a logos, right? There's these sources of rationality. Something happens to correct the wrong and there's a turn and the protagonist, the hero, shares in it. The hero, Elizabeth, Hamlet, doesn't matter. They all have a moment of recognition. They turn 
and share in the rationality. Reason is restored. A wrong is answered and people go on. Okay? In all of Shakespeare's tragedies, Lear, Naaman, Hamlet, whatever we've gone, we come to a rest at the end. All of us, even if it's a tragedy, we come to a rest. A tragic fault has been answered, the hero sees, and we can rest. The world returns to its order. Okay? How do you describe what's going on in Hemingway in this story? Is there a turn? Is there a recovery? If there's no peripatia and no anagnorisis, what are we left with in Hemingway's story? Explain it. Flesh that out, would you? Use your body. Give a body. Give an image in the body here. The heartbeat stops. Would you put that in terms of the story? <laughs> right. So we understand there's a conflict, but there's no resolution. It just leaves us hanging. And it, that leaves you with a feeling of loss, of despair, of continued conflict, tension that's never been resolve. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's modern language. So why, and I'm going to say, let me argue with me, I take a pleasure in reading this. This is a, a beautifully written story. Go back to my, my opening question. How can we take a pleasure in something that, that has the quality that you're giving it? Yeah. Do you all agree? It's not an easy story to read. It's about abortion. We're just. I'm, oh, go ahead. You speak up. Heavyweight. Heavyweight. Yeah. I don't. I myself don't have any trouble because it seems to me any sensitive man would be able to feel what's going on with a woman, just as any sensitive woman would be able to feel what's going on with a man. Um, what does the setting do for the story? Because it's going to be true for every one of the stories we read with Hemingway. And what's the why the title "Hills Like White"? She comes up with that phrase and thinks she's being cute and fanciful, and the guy has nothing to do with it. What's the significance of the setting? How does it speak to the story? And what's the meaning of the title? Sorry? Yeah. Did you know the backstory in that bomb? Did did everybody hear? Could you all hear? Can you speak louder? It's a term for something that you just want to get rid of. You haven't used for 
Uh, right. Yeah. The the white elephant in Thailand Thailand was a useless elephant. The kings who owned them wanted to get rid of them because they were a burden. So what's the significance of the elephant? It speaks exactly to what's going on with Jill. What's the meaning of um, the drink? Anis del Taurus. Huh? It's bitter. It's also something else. Anis del Toro is the drink which means the seed of the bull. The seed of the bull. Is everybody following? Is there anything in this story that does not speak? The rail station is a perfect image of the couple. They're coming from somewhere. They're, going, they're absolutely at cross purposes. We don't know where they come from. We don't know where they're going in their life. We're left in the middle. They're at cross purposes. They don't come together. The Amy, yes. sorry? Like a crossroad. Right. It's a railroad station. It's an in-between place, right? There is nothing in this story that does not speak. How do you put together something that perfectly in a world that means nothing? There's this great longing in Hemingway for perfection everywhere. And what he does in his stories is nothing short of amazing. Even though what his stories are about are these awful experiences of isolation, loneliness, couples at cross purposes. Here, quick, I want to look at, is everybody following how important the setting is? Because keep that in mind for the next question because I'm going to ask it of this second piece. In a clean, well-lighted place, we're in a bar with two waiters. There's an old man who just tried to commit suicide who's there having a drink. It's late. He comes there every night because it's the only place he can go. He's just tried to kill himself, but he survived. At the very beginning, it was late and everyone had left the cafe except an old man who sat in the shadow. Light and dark. The old man's death. Last week he tried to commit suicide, one waiter said. Why? Now look at this. We get no narrative except that one brief paragraph. Like Hills Like White Elephants, it all unfolds in dialogue. Nothing's cloaked in language. It, it couldn't be put forward more simply. We're engaging these characters directly. That's why Joyce said, the veil is reduced to nothing. We're there. That's part of his mastery. Last week, he tried to commit suicide. Why? He was in despair about what? Nothing. How do you know it's nothing? He has plenty of money. It goes on, go down below. The younger waiter wants to get home to his wife to have sex. And he keeps saying, he wishes this guy would go out and he asks, when he was hanging himself, how did he survive? And the older waiter says, his knee saved him. And the younger waiter's response is, why? He wants to get home. So the older waiter is showing his age. He's sensitive. The younger waiter is absolutely self-centered, self-serving. Um, who cut him down? His niece. Why did they do it? Fear for his soul. How much money has he got? So one of the things Hemingway is saying is, is money going to protect you against despair while having all the things you want? He must be 80 years old. Anyway, I should say he was 80. I wish he would go home. I never go to bed before 3. He's lonely. I'm not lonely. I have a wife waiting for me in bed. A wife would be no good to him now. You can tell he might, have been, um, um, he might be better with a wife. 
He goes and pours a drink for the old man and slops it on the table because he's angry that he has to serve. Um, sorry, I'm, um, I want to go home in bed, the young man says again. Each night I'm reluctant to close up because there may be someone who needs the cafe. The older man is there to serve. Ombre, there are our bodegas open all night long. You do not understand this is a clean and pleasant cafe. It's well lighted. The light is very good and also now they are shadows of the leaves. Good night, the younger waiter says. Good night. Um, remember when he, he went to fill the, um, the, the drink of the older man. Here's this line. Um, he says of the older man, he's clean, he's dignified, um, the way he drinks, um, even though he's, um, even though he wanted to kill himself, sorry, I can't find the line. Um, he says he's clean. Uh, it's true, I'm still not even finding it. Um, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Not always. This old man is clean. He drinks without spilling. So this is the, the what he was describing, the moment of grace and dignity. Even though this guy wanted to kill himself, the older waiter sees there's something there and it's it's worth it for him to stay up all night if somebody comes there. And there's a difference between a bodega and this cafe because this is clean and well lighted. Okay? And he says that this man is clean. Um, go on over on page three. The younger waiter says good night, turning off the lights, electric light. He continued the conversation with himself. It's light, of course, but it's necessary that the place be clean and pleasant. You do not want music. Certainly you do not want music. Nor can you stand before a bar with dignity, although that's all that's provided for these hours. What did he fear? It was not fear or dread. It was a nothing that he knew too well. That's the nothing of the Hemingway world. It was a nothing that he knew too well. It was all and nothing, and a man was nothing too. It was only that, and light was all it needed, and a certain cleanness and order. Some lived it and never felt it, but he knew it all was nada, ipuis nada, he nada, ipuis nada, are nada who are nada, nada be thy name, thy kingdom nada, thy will be nada in nada as it is in nada. He goes on that way, give us this nada, go on. Pius nada, hail nothing, full of nothing, nothing is with thee. He smiled, stood before a bar with a shining steam presser coffee machine. What's yours? Asked the barman, nada. And he goes on. Um, he goes, um, the, uh, the place he's gone to, the guy asked him, do you want another um, copita? The barman asked. No, thank you, said the waiter and went out. He disliked bars and bodegas. A clean, well-lighted cafe was a very different thing. Now, without thinking farther, he would go home to his room, he would lie in the bed, and finally with daylight, he would go to sleep. After all, he said to himself, it's probably only insomnia, insomnia, many must have it. So once again, we're not in the traditional um, um, peripatia and agnosis. We're not in a turn, um, or is there a turn? 
What are we left with in this story? At the end. Is there a difference between the two waiters? What do we go ahead? What's the difference? And why does he end? This is really strange. The the um, the, the guy the the older waiter who has a good heart in some ways is thinking about this and parodying the Lord's prayer. He's putting in nada, nothingness, you know, intermittently in it. And he leaves, and then he has this thought: um, it's only insomnia. Many must have it. How do we look at these two waiters? How are we left in this story? Yeah. So a flat line again? Are we left in the same spirit that we were left in in hills like white elephants? I think there's a there's a ray at the end because he's he's lying in bed and he can't sleep and he says many must have it. I think it's a I mean he's he's thinking directly of the old man in the cafe. Uh, that is a camaraderie there or at least not a camaraderie but he. To me, it's like you're learning about them, but then what happens? You don't know what happens next. I yeah. It's just there. You know? yeah. okay. so. Here, let me, add, let me try to be more blunt on this last, because the last line is, he goes home, he's clearly a better man than the younger waiter. There's something good in him, which is affirming. There's some good here. So it's, it's like Hemingway's image of somebody performing an act of grace under pressure. That's the Hemingway ideal, performing. So this guy seems to do that. He, he values that older man. The, I mean, he values his life. He's glad that he didn't get to carry through with his, you know, taking his life. He stood up for him. It seems that he identifies him with him. Um, but then he says, he goes home. He can't sleep. Um, and then he says, after all, he said to himself, it's probably only insomnia. Many must have it. So the fact, the irony of that last statement is obviously um, it's more than insomnia. It's a despair culturally. That we're living in a period of despair and people are awake, but he's not admitting it. He's saying it's only insomnia. Many must have it. So that's like Frost what to make of a diminished thing. There's such an abiding irony to that. Um, he's a good man. And yet, at the end, his goodness seems to come at the cost of a denial. That he's passing it off. Yeah, go ahead. Just the stages of life. To me, that, that reads more of that. The younger person, 
doesn't care that much about an older person. He's got all his own concerns and desires and what he has. The person in the middle is a little bit beyond that, but not quite all the way to the older man. But he's feeling that, that I that could be me eventually. Yeah. So I think it, it takes you through those different stages of life and how you find your way maybe through them. But we know that some people who are 25 and who want to get home and have sex with their wife are still that way when they're 80, but not everybody grows up. So my question is, I mean, oh wait, so how, how are we left here? Are we left at a flatliner again, or or is there a ray of hope? Go ahead, I'd like to go ahead. Okay, so I'm gonna push back with this. <laughs> the young waiter was, yes, very selfish and lacked compassion. However, like Fyodor, um, Karamazov, he was acting true to his human nature and he found meaning in existence. In Who? Being. The older the waiter. waiter. The younger waiter. waiter. So he wants to go home and have sex with his wife. Great. That's the meaning of Catholicism, what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, what some people could do with the truth. I know a lot about the older one. Look, he's true to the older. He is living oh, with a real, red blooded. No good. <laughs> Wait, say that. I missed that last part. Say that again. I what? From where? I really did what? I, what? You defended Fyodor Karamazov. Oh, in the beginning, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Really important. But um, I think that um, the older waiter was much more a, a sadder case to me. Because there's hope for the younger one. If he finds meaning in things and he has love in his life, if. He, he will yeah. grow into that. If. The older waiter, however, has lived, has no meaning in life. There is nothing that that well, There is. He keeps the bidet. He... Nada, nada. It was so <laughs> dark. It was so dark. Maybe, I thought maybe he's like, Maybe it's insomnia. He's not giving into despair. And maybe he's thinking, you know, maybe there's going to be somebody that's going to be like me when I'm old and more alone. That they'll take the time and keep the cafe open for me. There might be a little bit of hope there. Yeah. Because he's not like, oh, yeah, he's just insomnia. I'm, I'm not depressed. I'm not in despair. I'm not. Yeah. Nothing. He won't admit it yet. Yeah. Um, let, me, let me do this for a second because we've got to stop. I'm not going to push back here because that was too good. <laughs> all I can say, all I can say, is you're more charitable than I am. But here, let me let me put this question to you: If we take the story on its own terms and not project forward or back, we're in this world here. Answer my question: Is there a turn? What? Um, Alexis, this metaphor the a few minutes ago was flatline. And and. What he's talking about here is despair. It's the, the clear message at the ending is there's despair. Even if he doesn't admit it, many must have it. We, 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 we're aware that we're in a world of despair. The old man wanted to take his life. The younger man cares about nothing. He wants to get home to have sex. He doesn't serve. There's no, and we, we don't know. He may grow up. In, if we look with eyes of charity, he may grow up. And, we don't know. 
But my question is, when we look at the story on its own terms, closed, it's an action, it's completed, what's the spirit in which we're left at the end? Describe that spirit. And if I can do this, um, what's the importance of the setting? We saw that in um, Hills Like a White Elephant, the railroad setting spoke. There's not a setting in Hemingway that does not speak. It's an image of the action itself. What's the importance of a clean, well-lighted place? Hmm? Take you out from the despair. He's afraid of the dark. Hmm? <laughs> he's afraid of the dark and the unknown because he's always talking about it. The older man? The older wait, man. Wait, yeah. The waiter. Yeah. He said it has to be clean and well-lighted. He didn't like going out. He, that was his uh, security blanket to be there at the cafe. Because when he went home and he went to bed, he said he, it said he did it without even thinking. And only when daylight came did he go to sleep. Yeah, and we don't even... If, if you're going to give this away, don't, because I want I want the classes. Because you, what's the ultimate analog of a clean, well-lighted place? Laboratory. Oh God, <laughs> you are out of hand. More than usually, what's the the ultimate <laughs> the ultimate analog for a clean, well-lighted place is what? Heaven. Heaven. Yes. <laughs> yes. If you live in a world of nothing, where. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! I hope everybody sees that. Amy, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Where he says in the last page, where he's describing, you want a, you know, it is necessary that the place be clean and pleasant. Then he says, you do not want music. That's not heaven. That's a laboratory. Perhaps a more. Okay. Certainly, you do not want music. Okay, so like it was, it's 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 so nihilistic that yeah. he goes into nothing, 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 na 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 na. Yeah. So like I, I just really don't think I didn't see much sign for hope in him. And then you're left with the story. Many must have it. It becomes goes from particular to the general. Right. Perhaps universal. Yeah. And so then the reader's left thinking, wow, we're all in despair. Yeah, or this is our world. I want to be clear here. I don't want there to be any confusion. I don't think Hemingway's saying this is heaven. I think he's saying, because he doesn't believe, I mean, this world doesn't believe in heaven anymore. A clean, well-lighted place is the closest analogy. The guy stays up all night. He wants to be there for people. Heaven's gone. But Hemingway is playing with settings. That, that this is a parody. Um, we're meant to see the irony that that heaven's gone, and this is this is as close as we can get, or in a bathroom without music. Hemingway's playing with analogies. Every and it, I mean, take my question: if if you live in a world of nothingness, because this is dark, are nada who are nada, you know, many must have it. Um, that despair is a way of the world in this world. Take away God and that's all you've got. Um, how does Hemingway pull off these amazing stories um, as masterfully as he does? 
there's because everything in every story the, the, the drink the seat of the bull the elephant the tracks um, a clean well-lighted place um, despair um, he's, he, he, he is giving this world there's no nothing's couched in language we are getting these characters in a world and the world is a dark dark world this is our world and yet um, he, he shows us these stories about awful things with extraordinary beauty extraordinary beauty these are so well told they're so masterfully done okay let's stop next week sorry, next, next week we do Macomber <laughs> this is good. in lots of ways the darkest of the three but sorry Karen do you think there's a term in there? do you? I think if there is, I, I haven't thought where. Go ahead. Come on. Because I think that um, the older waiter is kind of participating on a lower, on a, to a lesser degree, in the not complimentary banter with the younger one until he gets to, after they've talked about suicide, and um, he says, He's lonely. I'm lonely. I have a wife waiting in bed for me. The young one says that. And then the older one says, well, he had a wife once too. And he starts kind of defending him a little bit. Well, a wife would be no good to him. Well, you don't know. Wife could, he may be better with a wife. And then he starts being a little bit nicer. I mean, I don't know how far you take that. Yeah. Term, but it's maybe a yeah. Like yeah. I, I, my way of looking at the older waiter is along uh, Michael's, you know, when he said there's a ray of hope. But there's a goodness to this man, and it's so subtle, you know, leave him be. He'd see how it's this Hemingway code of decency, or. And, and it doesn't go beyond that. In this world, there's nothing. But it, it just, I'm left aware that there's something good to this man. Even with the irony at the end, because yeah, yeah well, not even not even not so much the nada, but for him to say, after all, um, it's probably only insomnia. Many must have it. There's such a cover-up with that line that it darkens the irony that this is an age of despair. It's everywhere. Um, but the one thing it seems to me that that you can say about this waiter, um, in terms of the story, is there's something good to him, even if he lives in despair. It's a dark, we're in a dark world. This is a very, and it's curious because I've been thinking a lot about Bob's comment about Yvonne and the devil, you know, the exchange between them. That is so openly sinister. This in some ways is darker to me just because there's no acknowledgement of evil. There's no acknowledgement of God. It's all parodied. It's all put aside. It's, it's the modern world. So there's something really awful in, in my mind. At least Dostoevsky's acknowledging an evil and people have to deal with it here. When you, when you stop admitting God and you no longer admit evil, are you doing more evil than you realize because you're unaware of it? You know, because you're so innocent and everything. In, in Macomber, we're going to see a woman kill her husband. I mean, she's, there's something. So if you take Macomber's wife at the surface, she's a socialite, she's beautiful, she's got money, she's in a, what people see as a good marriage. 
underneath that woman is a vicious, vicious creature. Um, you, you can say that what she does with her husband at the end is an accident. I don't think it is. Um, unconsciously, she sees him getting free of her. She wants to have power over him. Women struggle with that. She kills him. It seems like nothing, but when I, when I look at what goes on in Dostoevsky with, you know, Ivan confronting the devil, at least <laughs> there's an acknowledgement that there's something evil here. What do you do in a world in which there's no God and you don't have to deal with evil? How much evil is going on that you don't see? That's a frightening notion to me. Everybody's abortion is, I mean, through, what's going on in our world to me is horrifying. And the people who are putting it in place think they're doing nothing but good. They're carrying out a revolution that's going to make the world better. It's, it's I'm speaking maybe too much for me, it's terrifying for me. Terrifying. This is not the world Suzanne and I started out in. Um, 75 years to see where we've come. It, I, don't, I don't know of anything else like it in history. And I have a good sense of history. I've never seen anything like this. If evil doesn't exist, how much, are you, how much evil are you getting away with? God. <laughs> Francis McComber. But people want to see it, you know. Everybody must have it too. I mean, right. I don't, I, don't, I don't even want to know. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, on a brighter note, McComber is a dark, dark story. It's, um, it's, it's really dark. Um, old Man, The Old Man in the Sea. I think represents a real change in Hemingway at the end of his life. It's that, sh that short novel that earned him the Nobel Prize. And it was of that novel that Hemingway said, or Faulkner said of Hemingway, he finally discovered God. So keep that in mind. I don't want to convince people. I don't want to color you. But um, The Old Man of the Sea is, has all the qualities that we see of the Hemingway Code, the Manly Code. I think was something different. So it's a short story. It's a it's um, comes at the end of his life. Um, it's a good story. It's short. So keep all these things in mind. Does a change take place or not? We'll see. I want to thank you all, especially for the pushback, <laughs> and, and actually for the charity. Um, you all, all of you guys, have a good week. Um, By the way, I think I said this, I don't, um, 